0: Hi, everyone, it's Elmira. Today's U.S. election comes at a moment of such deep political polarization that many are bracing for a bitter fight over the results. And yet, whoever eventually takes the White House will inevitably face calls to unify the country. Everybody is sad when their side loses an election. But the day after, we have to remember that we're actually all on one team. This is an intramural scrimmage. We're not Democrats first, we're not Republicans first. We are Americans first.
1: Now it's time for America to bind the wounds of division.
0: Have to get together. We can't hold grudges. We've got to be able to go out and unify the country because the president's supposed to heal as well as fight. But overcoming a divisive election is one thing. Reducing deep-rooted polarization is another. In fact, polarization is here to stay, says law scholar Richard Pildes, and this has important implications for the next administration's ability to govern. So how did polarization become a fixture of American politics? And will the new administration be able to get anything done? We posed those questions to Richard last week when we spoke to him for our latest podcast. Today, we're publishing the outtake from that conversation. Richard is a professor of constitutional law at New York University and the author of The Law of Democracy, Legal Structures of the Political Process. So there's no question that America is extremely polarized at the moment. You've long argued that partisan polarization in the United States is here to stay primarily because it's a byproduct of long-term historical and structural forces. Can you tell us a little bit about these forces?
1: Yes. So we got used to having a very uh, kind of non-polarized political culture for many, many decades in the United States uh, until I would say roughly the late 70s, early 80s when polarization began. We had, for example, even when the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were enacted in 1964 and 1965, those were bipartisan because there were very, very conservative Democrats, mostly from the South, who would not support those laws. Uh, But there were liberal Republicans from the Northeast and the Midwest who would support those laws. Now, why did that change? You know, in my view, it fundamentally changed because That system was a product of the massive disenfranchisement in the South of African-American voters um, and actually a significant percentage of poor white voters through the disenfranchising techniques that were put in at the end of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. And many people don't realize that the American South was a one party political monopoly for most of the 20th century. The only party in town was the Democratic Party because of these laws when we enacted the voting rights act in 1965 and broke down that system or at least began the process of breaking it down what happened is you had many more liberal or moderate liberal voters come into politics in the south african-american voters some other uh voters who had been excluded uh, and that started pushing the democratic party to the left and conservative democrats began to abandon the Democratic Party, and we got the emergence slowly over a couple of decades of a real Republican Party in the South, which didn't really achieve parity, didn't become, it didn't become really a normal two-party system in the South until the 1990s. And then the Republicans became even stronger in the South. So what happened is we had an ideological sorting of voters and the parties. And over time, as the effects of the Voting Rights Act ran through the system cascaded through the parties got sort of ideologically purified and we ended up in a situation where the most liberal republican is still far more conservative than the most conservative democrat there's there's no kind of overlap between the parties now if i'm right that polarization is a product of those very desirable historical changes then we are likely to have ideologically pure parties, very different in their ideologies, sharply polarized for some period of time until there's some major event or or demographic change that scrambles this all up.
0: Okay, so polarization is definitely a long-term feature of our political landscape. But you say that it's not the main impediment to good governance that the real problem is actually political fragmentation. What do you mean by that?
1: So we have a separated power system, as you know. You know, we have the Senate, we have the House, we have the President, um, to legislate on the major issues of the day, whether it might be immigration policy, environmental policy, uh, I don't know, criminal justice issues, whatever, labor policy. You know, on all these issues, the political process at the national level has fundamentally been paralyzed. What it takes in our system Uh, to actually be able to address these issues through the the political process is uh, a level of consent that gets you a majority in the House and a majority in the Senate, maybe enough in the Senate to overcome a filibuster, if we still have the filibuster, and a president to sign it. And when people are asked to take difficult votes on these kinds of issues, especially when they may have to compromise their positions... The way this typically works is the leaders of the party on both sides negotiate deals, including with the White House, um, and then they try to sell those deals to their members to get enough votes to get things through. Fragmentation is the way in which the parties are no longer, even though they're polarized, they're no longer as unified uh, as they were. And if parties aren't able, if the party leaders aren't able to bring along their members on tough votes to make tough compromises, then we can't govern. Uh, We can't put the majorities together necessary to legislate, especially in the separated power system. Take the Republican Party. They campaigned for years on repealing Obamacare. They got unified government. They had the ability to do it they couldn't do it because the Republican Party in the Senate was too divided. Senate Republicans trying to repeal and replace Obamacare and that vote coming up short when the Maverick made his mark. Senator John McCain, just days removed from his cancer diagnosis, stunning the chamber, turning the thumbs down.
0: Seven years of repeal efforts have now essentially gone up in smoke, leaving a frustrated McConnell to explain on the floor.
1: We told our constituents we would vote that way and when the moment came most of us did for those who you know support obamacare that's a good thing for republican voters they're like well what happened you know we were voting on this issue you told us you were going to do something on this issue the party's not coherent enough the party leaders aren't able to bring people along uh enough uh to to be able to to legislate so we have both things going on and this is why it's hard to get our minds around it. Polarized parties, but also lots of individual free agents within the parties who are going to do what they want to do and vote the way they want to vote, regardless of what the party as a whole or the party leadership thinks is a good vote to move things forward.
0: That fragmentation has become increasingly pronounced in recent years. Even before Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential election, many Republicans, including then Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, openly questioned whether he could unify the Republican Party.
1: Uh, this is the party of Lincoln, of Reagan, of Jack Kemp. And we don't always nominate a Lincoln and a Reagan every four years. Um, but we hope that our nominee um, aspires to be Lincoln and Reagan-esque, um, that that person um, advances the principles um, of our party and appeals to a a, a wide, vast majority of Americans, and so...
0: And within the Democratic Party, the gulf between centrists like Joe Biden and progressives like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has widened. Freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez fired a shot at Joe Biden. Uh, This was when she was asked about a Biden presidency, to which she responded, Oh God, in any other country, (laughs) Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party, but in America, we are. In 2014, you wrote that, and I quote, At this stage, specific reform proposals are less important than recognizing the role of political fragmentation in the decline of our capacity for effective governance. Since then, both parties have become a lot more fragmented. Is it time for specific reforms? And what would that look like?
1: Yes. And this is not true only about the United States. You know, One way of understanding fragmentation to make it concrete for people is if you look at Europe, there's been a tremendous rise in all sorts of new parties. And the two major center-right, center-left parties or coalitions have broken apart. And what that means in a lot of the democracies in Europe is it takes much longer to form a government. It means the governments are more fragile. They could collapse at any moment. In the United States, the fragmentation takes the form within our two parties of these factions and independent, kind of free agent political operators, and it makes it makes putting together the consensus you need to govern to legislate very difficult. What can be done to uh, uh, try to uh, change that situation? You know that that's a tough matter. I think that. The communications revolution has made individual politicians much more able to function as free agents through the Internet. They can raise lots of money on their own. They don't have to depend on the political party or the political party leadership to support them. They can go on cable television. They can you know, reach a constituency through Twitter and social media. They don't, they don't need to be really strong members of a unified team. I think one of the worst things that's happened, which is you know troubling for many reasons, but for this reason in particular, is the rise of outside money in elections, which takes the money away from the political parties and from the candidates uh, and creates tremendous power in individuals and outside groups, which legislators then have to respond to. If that money were flowing more to the parties and the candidates, that would provide more leverage, if you will for more unified coalitions in in the Congress, within the parties, and that would make it easier to put together the deals and the compromises that, that have to be made in our system to get legislation through.
0: That was Richard Pildes, a professor of constitutional law at New York University and the author of The Law of Democracy, Legal Structure of the Political Process. And that's it for today's outtakes. Thanks for listening. We're taking next week off to process the election. We'll have more on that on November 17th. Until then, I'm Elmira Bayrosly. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasallian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.